Uh, I mean, like, uh oh, don't don't record me saying that Jack Kirby wasn't the number one person in the world. <laughs> Greatest cartoonist ever, right? That's true. But comic book cartoonist. Yeah. Comic book cartoonist. Uh, welcome to Classic Comics Cavalcade. I'm Jason Sachs. No, I'm Amir Malik. For we were just in the middle of a conversation about Stanley and Jack Kirby because, like, Stan deserves a lot of the credit, like a <laughs> lot of the credit, right? Uh, he he's the one who had the idea of expanding the line. He can't. He had the idea of Fantastic Four, whatever it came from. You know, uh, Jack kind of drew drew them, built up the stories. You know, helped the helped the characters really get fleshed out. He designed most of the characters, but like Stan was like completely hands on from beginning to really like 1980 or so mm-hmm. when he stepped away and started working in Hollywood. Yeah, and I think with a, a lot of the stuff with Stan Lee's. I could say the popularity could be attributed to Stan Lee's marketing techniques. And that's something that, you know, you don't see it on a piece of paper. And in fact, people kind of poo-poo it because they're like, well, marketing, marketing doesn't do anything, but that's what get people find out about this great work. And actually like, it's a big testament to Stan Lee of advertising his bullpen and, um, and the artists and the writers which I think tradition from what I've heard comes from EC where like the stars were the artists. And so. Sure. But DC wasn't doing that at the time. I'm sorry. EC comics. Yeah. Uh, yeah. But I'm um, saying like at right, DC yeah. comics, like they weren't promoting Gil Kane as the artist on Green Lantern. Right. Right. They weren't. They weren't yeah. saying Carmen Infantino drew the flash. And so mm-hmm. you should read this other book that Carmine Infantino drew by Adam Strange. If you love the flash. They did that a bit, but like not the same way Jack or Stan did. Right, right. Yeah. So he does need to get a lot of credit. And, you know, the whole bullpen bulletins thing that people poo-poo about Jolly Jack Kirby and his mighty band of myth makers Mm -hmm. are creating a grand new title for you and all that jazz. Like, it's, yeah, okay, we're all adults now, but it's like, it really kind of pulled you along back in the day. Mm Mm-hmm. And like, I I don't think like Kirby Kirby's like next like one of the greatest cartoonists ever, right? There's there's no questioning that. Like just in terms of of his creativity and the artistry, yeah, and and what, like we were talking about, like he, he created romance comics for God's sake, and they're great romance comics he created. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, and he was shafted, but that doesn't mean other people can shouldn't get credit for some of the success you know yeah i think part of it too is you know about the lawsuit marvel he had against marvel for the return of his original art right yes in the mid 80s and there was a lot of like anti-marvel propaganda Mm -hmm. for a few reasons around that Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. one is that like gary groth especially at the time was really kind of anti stan lee because mm-hmm. he was young and full of piss and vinegar and mm-hmm. wanted to have an enemy but also because he was fighting to get kirby back what he deserved so yeah. it was like they were kind of overstating the case and then i think that that kind of propaganda has lasted mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. yeah but the dude could write fun comics yeah he, he's a jolly guy he's a jolly guy well and like I know, we're going to talk about some of the war comics in uh, Kirby Love and War 
And I, I know you probably didn't get a chance to really read the first issue of Sergeant Fury, but you can see a lot of like what makes Stan a, a fun writer, at least at the time. Mm -hmm. You know, it's not Shakespeare. It's not Alan Moore. It's not Neil Gaiman. Mm -hmm. But like he tells a story that moves the story along, right? Mm -hmm. And, you know, along those lines, like people talk about his best work at Marvel. Uh, I don't think like here to me like the best example is um you know it's it's a kind of a cliche but people talk about uh when jack left marvel and we read those new god stories and they're just written in a different way than stan would have ever written them mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and they're weird and they feel like from another world in a way mm -hmm. right that's part of what makes them great but it doesn't have the humanity mm -hmm. yeah yeah, I mean, who who knows? Maybe if Lee had put in some words, it could have been more popular. Who knows? But at the same time, it's great work. Yeah, it's different. To your point, there is something that uh, Stanley brought to that partnership that can never be denied. Yeah, and so like we were saying earlier, like I just don't believe in this whole. But I think it was like the Satan Lee approach to his work. Mm -hmm. Yeah. He was like a leech on top of Jack Kirby. And it was a partnership. Mm -hmm. And even Ditko uh, talks about that too. You know, I, there's no way Spider-Man would have been as popular if it wasn't for Stan giving him the pathos. Mm -hmm. I think the difficulty here is that, um, especially with American comics, there's just one person that does about, well, in terms of like taking time, about 95% of the time is taken up by the artist or 90%. And, and so the writer has time to do other things. Whereas in like, in even like Japanese comics, there's like a team of people doing it and it's maybe an eight hour job or something like that. And, but I don't really know, but like, and I think that's where the artists start to have resentments towards the writer saying like, well, I'm doing all the work. I should, I should get most of the credit Yeah. or more than half. And that may or may not be true, but like, I can't really say that just because the writer doesn't draw or doesn't take up a lot of time, they should be vilified. In fact, that villainy is the problem I have. I don't, I think Kirby does need to get most of the credit or a lot of the credit. Uh, I think he did deserve, I mean, he was right in his lawsuit of Marvel and he needs to get more money or, but I think the vilifying of, Stanley and making him seem like he's this evil person that took advantage of the artists and took all the credit. Yeah, that's a little bit of a. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I I should have said earlier too. Like part of it's like at at the end of his life, Kirby had a little bit of had a lot of anger built up and resentment, mm -hmm. and his last interviews, you know, which are so powerful. You know, he's railing against stan and the way he was treated mm -hmm, mm -hmm. that's kind of the last memories we have of him but yeah. um yeah uh so we read two or three stories from this book then we transition to that because uh, so this is in the kirby love and war or kirby war and romance excuse me mm -hmm. and uh the first story in here is a war story from November 56, Minefield. 
and it's got some of the most beautiful Kirby art I think we've seen. I love this story. It's this is like this is first count storytelling, perhaps from a, an experience that Kirby had, maybe. Maybe not exactly like this, but it was really cool. It's like, wow, like I would almost feel like you have to be, you have to have been at war to really be able to tell a story like this, I feel like. We'll keep going with that. And so just as a background, the story is about this uh, soldier who's kind of like scrawny, maybe like not as, not as, uh, you know, tough and rugged as the other soldiers. And he accidentally gets left behind. And while he's behind, he notices that the, the Nazis have created some minefields and they're trying to ambush the American soldiers. And through his cunning, you know, strategic way, well, they've, they've actually placed some marks of where the mines are and he rearranges it so that when the Nazis are trying to ambush the American soldiers, they actually walk on their own minefields. And the American soldiers are not, um, you know, are not affected. And he kind of saves the soldiers' lives and, you know, and they win and he becomes like, uh, they re they respect him, which is really cool, you know, like showing that a soldier is using his mind and, you know, things like that. Yeah. Yeah. It's not just all about the physical side, but mm -hmm. Kirby draws the hell out of the story too. He does. Yeah. Yeah. I love the way the helmets are drawn and inked. I'm sure the inking and the inker is, uh, is himself. Yeah. Yeah. I love Kirby inking himself. It's really cool. I love that. He's got like every scene has either a really interesting background or a group of soldiers or both. Mm -hmm. And it's really just like feels so alive. Yeah. It's, it's really cool. And, you know, the coloring style where they had, like, one flat color over a whole section of the of the scene, I think mm -hmm. works really well here. Mm -hmm. Like, it almost makes the, the, the like, setting kind of glow or pop in a way. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But more than anything, like, Kirby's just use of, like, camera angle and positioning is so interesting right like on page two panel five how he has the soldier behind barbed wire mm -hmm. it's just like such a little subtle touch that kind of gives you feeling the guy's behind enemy lines yeah that's a really cool uh cool drawing and him silhouetted in, in orange there too, just is so powerful, right? Mm -hmm. And then he's crawling along the ground there and Kirby has him like his, looks like his pack is really heavy. So he's like fighting his way as he crawls along the ground. Mm -hmm. Then again, on page three, we see him inside that little cave or whatever under the tree. Oh yeah, inside that hole in the tree, yeah. And he looks completely boxed in by it. Mm-hmm which fits his emotional state at that point. And then even when we get that reverse on page four, where we see him looking at the soldiers and that flips back to ins him inside the tree. Mm -hmm. Like it, it really just adds to the drama of the scene. And it's so well composed because Kirby has the soldier at the bottom of panel one and at the bottom of panel two. So you immediately know it's him. You get the subliminal connection. Mm-hmm. 
they could film they call it a reverse shot a reverse shot mm -hmm. and actually if you just look at the panels you kind of get what's going on mm -hmm. you don't even have to read it no you don't of course in the end he wins but again it's got a great curvy fight at the end mm -hmm. the the top two panels on page five are just awesomely powerful mm -hmm. yeah i agree this is just a, a fantastic story it's really cool yeah i'm actually looking at some of the original copies uh, online of course <laughs> not in person the original copies and the coloring is it's not really, it's still minimalist, even the original comic book copies, which is interesting. I think they took the original coloring for this book. Mm -hmm. Be, and I think that for, because like they don't recolor Gabe Jones in the, in the Sergeant Fury story. And mm -hmm. they also like the, the picture of the, uh, I guess they're Chinese soldiers in mm -hmm. the next story. They, they're just yellow, which is uh, disgusting. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. They don't recolor them, huh? Yeah, I guess not. They recolored. Oh, I guess if we go to the next story, um, they recolor the cover, but they don't do the interiors. So that's called Action on Quimoy. Mm -hmm. This one's inked by Christopher Rule, who apparently inked Fantastic Four number one. Oh, okay. Oh, that's right. Um, I was gonna ask you, you mentioned that they recoloring. Is there a do you know who the colorist was on these issues? So during the 60s, I know the colorist at Marvel was Stan Goldberg. Oh, okay. Who, who eventually went on to draw Arch Archie comics. Oh, and yeah. um, this, my guess is that it's Goldberg, but it might not be because he was kind of well known in that time period for drawing those solid color or coloring those solid color images. Mm -hmm. I mean, in part, they did that because it was faster, right? Mm -hmm. Didn't have to color every single character, whatever. Yeah. Well, I actually, I love the art in this one. Maybe it's, it has something to do with Christopher Rule inking it, too. I feel I, like inking on this is not minimalist as the previous comic that we read. I like Rule's inking on this. It's great, yeah. It feels sharp, you know? What about it you really like? Uh, I just think that there's so much there. And A, Kirby probably puts a lot of stuff there. And then Christopher Rule doesn't erase it <laughs> or mm -hmm. get rid of it or forget about it. Like the scene on page two when they're attacking the docks and you see oh, yeah. the trucks and everything else there. And even like the bulldozer they're blowing up or whatever it is. You see all the different pieces of it. Yeah, yeah. There's like this interesting kind of precision to it, you know? Almost reminds me of Bernard Krigstein. Oh, interesting. Can you elaborate on that? Like, what do you mean? I think it's just in the thickness of the line and the mm -hmm. feel from the line. Because mm -hmm. the line is very thin and very kind of precise. Mm -hmm. Which seems a little Krigstein-esque to me. Oh, yeah. Oh, do you see that or am I a little bit off on that? I mean, I'm not too familiar with Krigstein's art um, in terms of like I've seen some of I mean, you know, his popular ones. I do feel like when comparing it to Kirby, 
um, some characters look really Kirby-esque and some of them are more like traditional, I guess, I, I guess they do look like Christine or like traditional comics. You're right. There is kind of a mix of styles on these characters, isn't there? Yeah. And yeah. Like the characters on page three, especially on panel four, mm-hmm. almost looks more like Al Williamson or something. Yeah. Yeah. And in fact, like, the, like, uh, what the Chinese uh captain, I guess, looks a lot like in the next few pages, kind of looks like Fidel Castro. And that's, oh, yeah. it's not like the, it's not like the blocky Kirby drawings that you kind of are used to. Right. Yeah. You're right about that. Yeah, the the hands I guess are still Kirby style, mm-hmm. but yeah, it's like maybe it's because there's so much focus on the devices. Yeah, the hands are you could see Kirby under there, but I think uh, Christopher Rule had some really has but like the saber jets and in, in in there or the ships. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I totally see that. That doesn't quite look like Kirby. Mm-hmm. I wonder what Rule really brought to the job. Mm-hmm. In terms of the story, I wasn't kind of blown away by it. I had a hard time understanding it because what's the story? So their American soldiers are saving some Chinese soldiers and some of them they're attacking. Uh, so we, I think this is like there was a Chinese revolution in 47 or 48 and uh, the some of the people, the, the loyalists led off the mainland, which is why we have Taiwan now. And I think Kimoi, is that what it's called? Kimoi oh, is another okay. island off of China where they oh, fled to. Okay. Oh, I should have known the history. About well, I think they're expecting us to know the history. And how would you, how would you know it? <laughs> this is that 60 years later. It's only because I'm such a geek, I know this stuff. And See, I'm still guessing. What year is this? This is uh, 1959. Yeah, okay. And so the China, the revolution you said was in 47? Yeah, I think that's what it was. Because by mm-hmm. by 59, Mao had been in power for a while. Mm-hmm. I think they'd already gone through the... Well, they're, they're kind of starting the cultural revolution, I think. I could be completely talking out of my ass. No, I think that makes sense, actually. That makes but I know sense. the Chinese, the the red Chinese, to use the old phrase, took power when Truman was president. Because oh, that's okay. that's part of why there was the Red Scare in the 50s. Oh, wow. Interesting. That's good history to realize, because I always thought that the, and we're getting out of the topic of comics, I always thought that the Mao came into power a lot before that, much like in before even World War II, but no, before World War II, China was essentially a more or less a, a, a Japanese possession. Oh, wow. They owned Manchuria, which was a big section of China. Um, and they had a really weak central government. And then after the war, basically everything kind of popped open. And the US was hoping to get deeply involved in driving the economy of it. And instead, they went communist and they pushed the Americans out. So there was a lot of anger about that, too. In the U.S., because like in Cuba, right, it's just like Cuba's just a smaller story of the same thing. Yeah. We wanted to control Cuba. And instead, um, they went Marxist and we couldn't have our casinos there. 
Mm-hmm. And also, I think there was an idea that China was going to be a protectorate against the Russian incursion into Asia. Right. right. But yeah, I mean, yeah, and and now that I think about it, like Korea was essentially a reaction to to China going communist mm-hmm. because there was fear they were going to spread their communism down the uh, the Korean Peninsula. Yeah, I remember hearing about that. What's the word that they used to use the uh, the spreading of communism? Oh yeah, the domino theory. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, we're we're. I'll go deep into this theory because I could talk about this shit all day. I, I mean, swear I should have gotten my degree in history. Can you imagine what would the analogous comic be to this today? Because we luckily, thank you God, we haven't had any wars that were this major. Mm-hmm. Um, has it been a tech boom? The housing crisis of two thousand eight. Well, I was thinking it would have to be like Afghanistan. Oh, I mean, war-wise. I mean, in terms of like... Oh, this oh is yeah. Like something happening 12 years ago, which is like 2010. It just seems like it's not that far away. So oh, oh, yeah. Right. Yeah. I guess it would be like a, a comic about the housing crisis. Yeah. Crisis, yeah. I mean... The dot, uh, not the dot-com, but the banking crisis of 2010, yeah. which I think there'd be a great comic in that, actually. Uh-huh. Think about it. Like it'd be, it'd be interesting. Comics can do this thing that no other art form could do, where you can tell this big story in little ways. Yeah, and you can be political or have, make these grand statements, and then have these small scenes too. Mm-hmm. I think that'd be really interesting. Yeah, I mean, I, what do kids like nowadays? <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, well. We both love indie comics. You can do whatever you want in indie comics. It's true. It's true. We were going to talk about Sergeant Fury, and maybe we'll talk about it more next time. I just love uh, Kirby's art in this story. I do too. Yeah. Dick Ayers is the inker. And Ayers and Kirby were always a good combo, I think. Mm-hmm. It just feels, you know, it just feels like it's nonstop action. Should we talk about? um next week uh about the first like your original suggestion which was my bad i didn't get to read it but the first sergeant fury and the howling commandos and then the first sergeant fury from shield yeah that sounds fun there'd be a good contrast i love that first start that nick fury of shield story too it's so James Bond. It's hilarious. It is. It's pretty cool. They have a car that they torch, which is, I just looked up how much it was worth. It's like $1.9 million. <laughs> yeah, it'd be a great, great pairing with Sergeant Fury because they're both like so full of action. But one is like techno action. One is like this raw action. Yeah. I got to say too, I want to read more of these war stories. I haven't been good about get, getting them all read but after especially this first story i am so curious to read more of his stuff mm-hmm. yeah there's at least one story in here that al williamson inks another one that did go inks oh wow al, oh wow i didn't know that i'm just turning to a page on that fury story at the end they have all the guns all his guns he's all like Weapons of war. Us commanders know these pea shooters like we know our first names. And if you arm chair battle, 
buffs ever want to be real howlers, then here's something to drum into your skulls. That's an order. And he just basically gives you like what each country's guns are. Nick is so hardcore. But they don't have the American gun. Alright, so let's do that next week. Yeah, that's so cool. Thanks, Samir. I hope I didn't go off too far on my love of uh, history. But... I love it. I loved it. So thank you. I need more. We should we should have a Jason teaches Amir about <laughs> 1940s and 50s uh, global warfare. And then an expert can listen and say, Sax knows nothing. <laughs> what he's, he's completely talking out of his ass. Typical internet, you know. They'll, uh, <laughs> Call me Wikipedia. Jason like Wikipedia. Push his glasses back. Actually, um, <laughs> um, 1947 was the year that... Uh, all right. Thank you, Jason. This is fun. See you, Amir. Oh, thank you.